these next few moments, I want to continue in a series, and we'll be concluding it next week. As we Next week, we're going to be talking about going all in in the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be praying for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But today, I want to talk a little bit about Moses going all in. And for those of you that may be just coming in today and you don't know what's been going on, you can catch the entire series. You can go online. In fact, we have a whole congregation of people that listen to us online. And, and if you're listening online, it would sure be nice if we could meet you. Why don't you come to church? But that way you don't have to miss anything that's going on if you're interested. I'm going to ask that you would turn in your, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. And and for those of you that want to jot down notes on the back cover of your bulletin, we have an outline of the message so that you can kind of fill things in as you go there. In Exodus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his own people. And glancing this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. Moving down now to verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard them groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Lord, now take your word and apply it as you will in Jesus' name. This is a stage in the life of Moses. When he went in one of these all-in moments, why he felt prompted that particular day when he saw Egyptians fighting Hebrews or beating them to jump in, we do not know. We don't know what his motivation was except that the Scripture tells us that He saw the Egyptians beating his own people. He had been raised in the palace for 40 years. And during this time, he was raised as royalty. He was raised as an Egyptian, and yet deep down in his own heart, he knew that it was the people of Israel that it was his people. And in that moment of time, he decided to go all in and defend the people of his birth over the people that he had been raised in. And so he jumps in to save what he thought was an injustice, and he kills an Egyptian and he buries him in the sand. And he had to at that moment feel justified in standing up for his people and surely the Lord will see what I have done in going all in in this particular moment and reward me for doing the right thing. And what follows is that he instantly, when it found out, and the the Hebrews looked at him and said, we don't accept you because you're not one of us, even though you killed an Egyptian. He suddenly felt isolated and felt like he had no people. 
Now the king is angry and wants to kill him. The Hebrews turn their back on him. He had no place to go. And in his mind he is thinking, how can this be because I've just gone all in. I've done what I think is right. I've done, I've done what I thought you wanted me to do. And now I am lost without any direction to go. How can you turn your back on me, God? And he ran away to hide. And a few verses later, he's sitting there next to a well. And the description in the original writing is is that he gets to this well and finally out of energy to run, he hits the well and he just slides down on the well and he sits there with his hands holding his face and almost in a place of despair begins to think, what went wrong? And the first point of the message this morning is this. When going all in feels like it was all for nothing. When going all in feels like it was all for nothing. As we have talked about the level of commitment that the Lord is asking us to make, that we can no longer sit on the periphery of just trying to be a Christian in name only and in title only without the subsequent obedience that the Lord requires of us, I want you to know that there will be moments in your life when you will obediently follow the Lord and go all in, and it will seem as if it was all for nothing. There will be things that will happen within your life and within the circumstances of your own life and home that you'll sit back and say, Lord, I was honoring you and I went all in and I went all in on obedience and now I find myself I'm isolated. This didn't turn out at all like I thought it was going to. What happened? Why did you turn your back on me? Why do I feel all alone? And if you have lived for the Lord any length of time, you know there are going to be moments of time where there will be dryness in your soul and you feel as if you're going all alone. I read a story that I caught my attention because I recognized one of the names in the story. And as I did a little research on it, I discovered that I had a connection to the family that was involved in this. It started out this way. In 1921, a missionary couple by the name of David and Sevilla Flood went with their two-year-old son David from Sweden into the heart of Africa. The area that they went in 1921 was called the Belgian Congo. And as they got to this particular place, they met up with another young Scandinavian couple called the Ericsons. And the four of them together sought God for direction as to where they should go and what they should do in missions. In those days, after much prayer and tenderness and devotion and sacrifice of just getting there, they seemed to feel as if the Lord was leading them into the jungle. And so they went into a very remote area to take the gospel. It was a huge, huge step of faith for these two young couples. They got to a remote village of Indolara. And when they got there, they entered in to want to minister to the people. And the chief of this particular tribe wanted nothing to do with them. And as they began to share with him, told them they were not welcome there, that they could not stay in the village, and that if they talked about this God, it might make his gods upset, and he didn't want to suffer the wrath of his gods. They felt as if the Lord had called them there, so they went a half mile up the mountain from this village, and they built their own mud huts to live in during this time. Sevilla Flood was a very small woman. She was only four feet eight inches tall. And as she was working with her husband to build this mud hut that she would live in, there was one little boy that was allowed from the village to come to where they lived, and he would come every day to either sell them chickens or to bring them eggs. 
the only one that the chief would allow to go would be a little boy. And as they sat there and they prayed about how they would reach this village, they began to think, if this little boy is the only one that can come to us, then let's share Jesus with this little boy. There were no other encouragements whatsoever. And so after weeks and weeks of this little boy coming and bringing them chickens and selling them eggs, every day Sevilla Flood would sit there and do her best to communicate with this little boy and tell him about Jesus and the love of Christ. And one day, this little boy said, Yes, I'll believe in Jesus. And made a step to trust Christ as his Savior. Aside from that, no encouragement, no hope. Meanwhile, malaria began to sweep the land. And one by one, all four of the missionaries began to uh, fall to this malaria and this sickness in the time they were there. And the Ericsons, after they got it, decided we can no longer stay here. We need to go down the mountain to the nearest uh, little town that's down there. And, and we will start a, a missions organization there and we'll stay there. And so they left, leaving the floods alone on that mountain. Shortly after that, Sevilla Flood became pregnant. During the pregnancy, she was battling with this illness of malaria. And it continued to weaken her. And finally the time came for her to give birth. And the little boy that had been coming to them told the chief what was going on. And in a stroke of mercy, he allowed one of the midwives from the village to go up and help Sevilla Flood give birth. She gave birth to a little girl who they named Aina. In 1923, the delivery, however exhausted Sevilla to the point where she had no strength left. She was already weak from malaria. The struggle was a heavy blow to her stamina. And after 17 days of her husband kneeling by her bed, seeking God for healing, seeking God for a breakthrough, she died. Instantly, something happened inside of David Flood. Something snapped in him. His heart became full of bitterness. He went outside the house and he dug a very crude grave. And he buried his 27-year-old wife in that grave. And as he is putting the grave together and putting a white cross on it and writing her name on it, he became so bitter that he had gone all in and it was all for nothing. And he began to blame God as to how you could do this to us. And he took his two-year-old son and he took his infant daughter and he couldn't even carry her so he had to hire somebody from the village to make something out of bark so that he could carry the baby and follow dad down the mountain and as he got down the mountain he got to where the Ericsons were and he walked into the Ericsons and he took this 17-year-old baby and he hands it to them and he says here she's yours you raise her I'm taking my son and we're going back to Sweden this little girl and her new parents, the Ericsons, felt like if they're leaving, maybe we should go back up there. So they went back up the mountain to live in the huts that they had lived in to try to reach these people, and they had no success. In fact, the chief became so angry that he poisoned them. And within days of each other, eight months later, the Ericsons both died, leaving this little girl alive. Nine-month-old baby Ania was given to an American missionary couple named the Bergs that were in a city down there. And they adjusted her Swedish name to be Aggie so that they could pronounce it. And eventually brought Aggie back to the United States when she was three. The Bergs loved little Aggie. 
But they were afraid that they would never be able to return to Africa because she had been given to so many couples with no paperwork that they would never be allowed to legally adopt her. And so they decided to switch from being missionaries and stay in the United States and become pastors of a church. And so Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and there she met and married a young preacher by the name of Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hurst not only pastored some churches within the Midwest, but ultimately Dewey Hurst became the president of Northwest Bible School of the Assemblies of God in Seattle, Washington. As he was there serving as the president, one day, years into her adult life, a magazine showed up in her mailbox that was completely written in Swedish and she didn't understand any of it. As she was flipping through it, she saw a picture of a white cross on a mountainside that had her mother's name on it. She instantly took that magazine and rushed to the Bible school so that she could have the story translated for her. And here's what the story said. It tells about missionaries who went to Ndolara in the heart of the Belgian Congo in 1921. And while they were there, they had the birth of a little white girl. It told the story of the death of the young missionary mother. It told the story of one little African boy who had been led to Christ and how after all the white people had left, that little African boy grew up and persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article told about how gradually, now that he's all grown up, that young boy, as now a man, began to win every child in the village to Jesus Christ. And now the children had won all of their parents to Jesus Christ. And now that little village, a total of 600 people had been converted to Jesus Christ through the years because of the willingness of David and Sevilla Flood to answer God's call to Africa. Because they endured so much and were faithful to witness to even lead the one little boy that they could to Jesus Christ. Because of that, 600 people had been saved. That little boy without her knowing it, had grown up now and had become the general superintendent of what is now Zaire, formerly the Belgian Congo. And at that time, the time that Sevilla Flood died, it appeared to all human reason that God had led a young couple to Africa only to desert them in their time of need the most. In the time when they needed Him the most, it seemed as if they got all in and it was all for nothing. And it would be 40 years before God's amazing grace and His real plan for that village would be known. For Reverend Dewey and Aggie Hurst, at their 25th anniversary, the university gave them a gift to send them to Sweden so she might try to find her dad. After searching around, Aggie discovered where her biological father was. She went to meet him and instead ended up meeting some half-brothers and sister. They found out that David Flood had remarried. He'd fathered four more children and had generally given up his life and had been an alcoholic for 50 years. He'd recently suffered a stroke. He was still very bitter. And he told all of his kids, there's one rule in my family. Never mention the name of God to me because God took everything from me when I went on. After an emotional reunion with her brothers and sisters, she asked, can I, can I speak to Papa? They hesitated and they said, you can talk to him. But I want you to know, even though he's very ill right now, he still flies into a rage if you mention God. But Aggie would not be deterred. 
And so she walked into the squalid apartment where her dad was laying, liquor bottles laying everywhere, approached the 73-year-old man that was laying on a rumpled bed. His face was to the wall and she stood behind him and she said, Papa. He turned around and when he saw her, he began to cry. Eina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she said, as she sat down in his bed and took his face in her hands. She says, God took care of me. And the moment she said, God took care of me, he instantly stiffened. His face changed. His tears stopped. And he said, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face away from me, and so I turned my back on him. And she wouldn't give up, and she kept stroking her dad's face. She says, Papa, I've got a little story to tell you. And it's a true one. She says, Papa, you didn't go to Africa in vain. And Mama didn't die in vain. You see, that little boy, the one boy from the village that you had contact with, you and Mama led him to Jesus. And that little boy, through the 40 years since then, has led every person in that village to Jesus Christ. You see, Dad, you planted a seed and it just kept growing and growing. And as this conversation took place, it was 1964, and she said, Today, 600 people know Jesus because you and Mama were faithful to go all in when it didn't make any sense. Papa, Jesus loves you. And He never hated you. And the old man turned and he looked back into his daughter's eyes and his body began to relax and he began to talk. And they spoke all afternoon. And at the end of that conversation that afternoon, he had come back to God, whom he had resented for so many decades because in his all-in moment, he thought it was all for nothing. And over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. And Aggie and her husband soon had to return back to America. And according to the story, that on her flight back home, her father died and instantly was ushered into an eternity with Jesus Christ. Moving forward in the story a number of years, now you get into the early 1990s and the Hearst were attending an evangelism conference that was being held in London. And there was a report given on some things that had happened in Zaire. The superintendent of the National Church was there preaching, saying, I represent 110,000 baptized believers. He spoke eloquently of the gospel spread throughout his nation. And at the end of the service, Aggie couldn't wait to go talk to him to see if he knew anything about the village and where she had grown up. She walked up to the preacher that day and she said, My name is Ania Flood. I'm known here as Aggie, but... David and Sevilla Flood were my parents. Do you know them? Have you ever heard of them? And as soon as she mentioned that name, the superintendent began to weep and grabbed her in his arms and held her. And he goes, I'm the boy. I'm the boy. He said, you'll never understand what it means. He said, because on behalf of your parents and your mom and your dad, I thank you for coming and dying because as you died, 110,000 people have come to Christ. Because your parents were not afraid to go all in, even when it didn't make any sense. He invited her to come to Africa, he says, because your mother's grave is a strong memorial to the people of our country. And so the time was made and they got to travel to Africa. And as Aggie and her husband were welcomed by cheering throngs as they walked into the village that they had never been allowed to set foot in. 
She says, I walked through thinking about my mom and dad. Knowing that we had lived a half mile up the hillside and had to bury mom over here. And today, a little girl who had been passed from family to family to family got to walk through a village and be cheered because of the impact her family had had upon them. And in the most dramatic moment, she was escorted by this little boy who's now the district su- or the general superintendent of Zaire. And she knelt in the soil of Africa in front of the cross of the grave of her mother. And she gave thanks. She gave thanks that even when it didn't seem to make sense, her parents had got all in, even when they thought it was all for nothing, and understood that God's agenda is different than ours. That day at the church service, the general superintendent preached in the little church that he had had a chance to start. He preached out of John chapter 12, verse 24, when he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126.5 that said, They who sow in tears will reap in joy. And David and Sevilla Flood, following the call of God, didn't think they had one single convert that they knew of. David Flood all those years thought that he had gone all in and it was all for nothing. Little did he know that the one convert they had was exactly who God wanted them to get in contact with. And that one seed produced fruit beyond their ability to believe and a country was transformed because of that seed. You see, you never know who the seed is going to be. But if you go all in, God guarantees that you will see an increase through your life. Because God and His kingdom sees things that you don't see. David and Sevilla Flood went all in and thought it was all for nothing. But it wasn't. Secondly, failure is never final. No matter how many wrong turns you may have taken in life, no matter how many detours it seems that you have been faced with, God's grace brings us back to the right course. God in His mercy and His grace brings you back when you come to Him and plants your feet on a course that leads you and your life to bringing Him glory. Moses did what he thought was right, went all in, killed an Egyptian, and was sitting by a well. For 40 years he was out there wandering around thinking, I don't know what happened, but God, I went all in and it was all for nothing. But in that moment of failure, though he hastened the plan of God, God is never left without direction regardless of what we do. And so for 40 years, Moses thought his life was over, thought it was wasted, was out taking care of sheep. I'm sure there were many nights when it was particularly rough weather and he's thinking, I used to live in the palace. How did I get here? What has happened to me? All my ability and all my talent and all all my potential has been wasted. I went all in and it was all for nothing. Lord, I've been a failure. But God was up to something. You see, Moses was put out to pasture for 40 years and what seemed like a life sentence was really part of the plan of God because God had already put Moses through 40 years of living in the palace 101. 
Now God was putting Moses through wilderness living 101 for the next 40 years. And the irony of the Exodus story is that Moses thought that he was not qualified to be used of God, but God was leveraging every past experience that he had to providentially lead him to a place where he was going to use all of those experiences in Moses' life to help lead the people of Israel. You see, after tending sheep in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses knew the way of the wilderness. He knew the wildlife. He knew the watering holes. He knew the seasonal weather patterns. He knew exactly what to do so that he could lead the people of Israel for 40 years because he'd been there. And what he thought was wasted time in his life was actually the providence of God. Going all in for God isn't something you do just once. In fact, you'll probably have a few failures along the way. But I want you to know something. Your failures are not the final word on what's going on in your life. You can choose to, like Moses, sit down by a well and think, I've wasted everything. My failures have disqualified me. I have no more chances. Or you can get up and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't know what was going on, but I need you to, by your grace, to bring me back to a trail where you can use me again and that you can be glorified in my life. I have a friend of mine that pastors a really large church. When I was working in the district office, he would ask me from time to time if I could send resumes of people that he could interview for associate pastors. And I remember as I was talking to him, one of the interesting comments that came up was he said, he said, as I'm interviewing people, he says, one of the questions that I like to ask them is, what have you ever tried that you failed miserably at? What have you ever done in ministry that you tried that you just failed miserably at? And he says... If they haven't experienced failure up to that point, they don't qualify for my staff. He said, because there's something about failure and working toward God and working with God that humbles a person. It changes their heart. He says, it's previous failures that prepare us for success in the future and teaches us how to handle it with thankfulness when God allows us to see success. He said, you see, it's the dents in the ship of life that, along the way that bring wisdom to us. And so, though you may be here today and you've experienced some failures in your life, it doesn't disqualify you from being used of God. It brings you to a point where now when God wants to use you in success, you have the wisdom to handle it. Your failures are not fatal to you unless you let them be. Never underestimate the ripple effect of one act of obedience. Your obedience will never be for nothing. Your obedience will never be for nothing. And when you go all in for the cause of Christ, there will be setbacks along the way. And when you have a setback, do not take a step back because God is already preparing your comeback. Because God's not left without a plan. And thirdly, Some of you need to let go and let God. In Exodus chapter 4, in verses 2 through 5, comes this great interaction between Moses and God. And then the Lord said to him, Moses had just questioned God, going, you know, God has outlined a plan by what He wants to do to bring His people out. Moses was right there with him until Moses, until God says, Moses, it's you I want to use. And then he got really scared. And Moses answered and said, what if they do not believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say the Lord did not appear to me? And in verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that you have in your hand? 
And Moses said, it's a staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And so Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. I love this line because this proves me Moses was real. And Moses ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand, took a hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Out of all of the things that God could have done, why did he choose the staff? Because he knew that Moses' identity was wrapped up in being a shepherd. He knew that that was Moses' way of making a living. He knew that that was Moses' way of protecting his flock. I mean, he probably was pretty good with that, with that staff at reining in sheep that need to be reined in and beating off wolves and coyotes that need to be beat off. He knew how to use that thing. That was his tool. And this was, moment, this was, this was Moses' all-in moment when God looked at him and said, What are you hanging on to? Or maybe it would be, What are you not willing to let go of? And Moses said, it's a staff. And Jesus said, throw it down. Put down your identity. Put down your tools. Put down your intellect. Put it, put it down. Would you, are you willing to give it to me? There comes a moment in your life where if you're not willing to let go, then you don't control whatever it is you're holding on to. It controls you. And if you don't throw it down, your staff will remain forever your staff. And if you're not willing to let go of the things that you have, then forever you will hold on to them and they will only be what you can make of them. You see, I love one of the lines that I read in the book that Mark Batterson wrote. He said, you know, you can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. You can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. And if you want God to do something off the chart, then you have to take your hands off the controls and let God lead and guide. So what is in your hand? It may be tempting to say, it doesn't matter because I, I can't make a difference anyway. I don't have anything that I can offer. And you can't as long as you hang on to what you have. But... If you can put two fish and some loaves of bread into the hands of God and He can feed 5,000 people, then obviously five and two doesn't equal seven in the hands of God. Five plus two equals 5,000. And so the mathematician in you has always worked things out of, here's who I am, here's what I'm good at, and if I give it to God, here's what I can expect. And God's going, your expectations are too low. Because if you do it yourself, that's what you come up with. But if you put it down and give it into my hands... What's that you have in your hand? What's that you have in your life? What's that you have in your, in your lunch bag, dear son? If you put it into the hands of God, you'll be amazed at what God can do with it. What would have happened if on that day when 5,000 hungry people are sitting on a hillside and Jesus sent His disciples to go around and find out who had food, if that little boy had been selfish for just one moment and said, they're not taking my lunch. He probably was not sitting next to his mother because his mother would have said, Hide your lunch. Little did he know that that lunch was going to feed so many people because he put what he had into the hands of God. 
And so the question is this. What's, what's that you have in your hand? Some of you have experienced moments where you took steps toward God. And you said, Lord, I'm going all in. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm going to define my faith in you. And I'm going to be a person that is a follower of Jesus Christ. And the first time you came up against resistance, you felt like I've gone all in and it was all for nothing. Because the enemy is a discourager. This morning we had a message in tongues. And the interpretation that I felt upon my heart was lift the people into joy because the joy of the Lord is your strength. You need strength when you're in the middle of battles. You need strength when you're not feeling very good about yourself. You need strength when you're in the middle of things that you don't know what's going on. You need strength when you've gone all in and it doesn't seem like it's coming to anything. And the joy of the Lord lifting up your eyes and beginning to praise God brings a strength flooding into your soul that you can't produce on your own. But it comes when you learn to open up your hands and give to the Lord what it is you have in your hand. So your choice is that you can hang on to it and see what you can do, or you can hand it over and see what God can do. Because going all in is up to you. But there's two paths ahead of us. Each of us as individuals must make that decision. There are those of you today who are here who you have not personally defined your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you think you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person. Maybe you've grown up in, in a church whose background said it's your good works that brings you to a point where God looks at you and says, you know what, there's so much goodness in you, I can't do anything. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it is your personal decision. You must choose. To respond to the grace of a Savior or to ignore it. And that's hard for us because we are people that like to earn things. Give me something to do. I've had people sit in my office and they're going, I can't believe that God's grace is so free. That Give me something to do. You can't earn it. You just can't earn it. And it goes against everything of our nature to simply by faith receive a grace that He paid for so that He could take your sins and replace it with His righteousness. And all we can do after that is offer ourselves as all in. I'm going to ask our worship team to please come. And as they come and as we prepare ourselves for communion this morning, I just was asked that you would close your eyes for a moment and bow your heads. Because maybe you're here today and you would say, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Let me describe what that may feel like to you. Maybe you've got a, a, a knot in your throat. Maybe you're a little uncomfortable on the inside. Maybe you're, you just can't describe the feeling or the sensation you have. We call that the convincing power of the Holy Spirit. What that is is the Lord saying, I want you to respond to me today. And the only way I can do this is from the inside by drawing you. And that feeling is nothing to be af afraid of or ashamed of because every one of us that knows Christ has come the same way. But you must learn to respond and act on that because your eternal destiny depends upon the decision you make. Whether you will receive Jesus Christ and what He has done for you or whether you will reject Him thinking, I can do this on my own, but you can't. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I'm, I'm sensing in my heart that I, I'm ready to receive Jesus. I want to yield my life to Him. I want Him to forgive me 
of the things which I have done wrong and I want His perfection and His righteousness to be appointed to my life. I want to know that I'm going to heaven not because of the things I do but because of what He's done. And everybody's head bowed and nobody's looking around so I don't want anybody to feel you're going to be embarrassed. And, and what I'm going to do at the end of asking for responses I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. And then at the end of the service I would love to be able to have an opportunity to talk with you. But if you're here this morning and you say, I'm, I'm sensing that tugging in my life. And I want, I want Jesus in my life. I want to surrender my life to Jesus because I want to know that the guilt of my past and my failures are gone. If that describes you today, would you, would you just lift your hand up? And I'm, all I'm going to say is, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I agree with you. And then you can put it right back down. I'm looking all the way over to the, to the far left singer. Yes, sir, I agree with you. You may put it down. Moving now to the, to the center areas. Is Jesus dealing with you this morning? Is this your day? Moving now over to your far right and into the overflow. Is Jesus dealing with your heart today? Is this a moment to you to, for you to define your relationship with Christ? As I Today I'm going to be a follower. Yes, I see your hand. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the response to your word. You said that it would never return without having done some work within lives. And so for those who raise their hand today, I pray right now that with their own words, they would simply say, Jesus, forgive me and come into my life. Jesus, forgive me and come into my life. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you died to forgive me of my wrongs and that your perfection and your righteousness will be given to me because you love me and all I can do is receive it by faith and I pray that you would write their names in the Lamb's book of life as children of God right now Lord, there are a lot of others of us that are standing here today making decisions as to what we're going to open our hands and be willing to give you. And I ask that you would give us a faith and ability to believe that we can trust you more. And that truly, Lord God, that we can go all in with you. And for those that may be sitting here in a situation in their life where they have gone all in and it feels like it's all for nothing, and they heard the story of the flood family, Lord, and they're thinking, you know what, I didn't go to those extremes, but I feel just as isolated. I feel like I've tried to be obedient to the Lord, and it's been all for nothing. I can't believe the difficulties. I pray today that you would encourage them that whenever they go all in, it's never all for nothing. That there are things that you are doing that they may not be able to see today. And that you administer hope and peace and joy to their life. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.